Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. So Joe Biden announced that everybody in the United States is now eligible to receive a vaccine, which is fantastic because nobody can actually get a vaccine because there's a vaccine shortage in some states. And Johnson & Johnson's vaccine has been paused due to an alleged blood clot issue that was known weeks before the pause happened. So how do we stand in the quest for herd immunity and our return to normal? First, why is herd immunity important? Why is the quest for normal important? Just from the constructs of capitalistic society, you have to have people engaging in commerce in order for the fake economy to stay afloat. You have to have exchanging goods and services, mostly services, right? 70% services in the United States, mostly going out and buying stuff from wherever you buy stuff from, whatever store you go to. You have to have this exchange going on. And not just necessities, you have to splurge. You have to take out store credit. You got to get out more credit cards. You got to take out loans, blah, blah, blah. And the only way to do that is to either A, wear masks and remain six feet apart, which is what we're currently doing. Kind of. Or B, kind of, force everybody to get herd immunity. Let's assume that we can either A, do nothing, just keep wearing masks, or B, get a shot. Right. What what happens? Right. Get get the vaccination for herd immunity. So so that's basically it. So if we just keep wearing masks, we'll just prolong COVID and everybody gets sick eventually or not. It either goes away or or if we get vaccinations, you get to jab on people in the arm. You get to I think is what, 70 percent total vaccination to get to herd immunity. They keep dropping the number because they're playing games to make you think that it's not 70 percent, but it's like 70 percent. It has to be that if you're in a room of 10 people or 100 people, there's no vectors for basically infection. That's what you're trying to do. Yeah, and we'll just say it's 70 percent because the numbers mathematically derived, but it's kind of arbitrary for our discussion purposes. So right now in the United States, you have some double digit percentage of people that have been vaccinated. And for our purposes, we're not going to distinguish between whether you've had your second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna, it, it doesn't matter. The, the first dose provides enough immunity to generally prevent death and to probably prevent spread. Again, we're, it, it's a rough, fuzzy thing that we don't really care about for this part of the discussion. It's 120 million people have received at least one dose. Okay, so that's about a third. 380 million people in the United States. In engineering terms, that's about a third, right-ish, good enough. We now have two-thirds of the population to go. About 20% of the population is ineligible right now for the vaccination. So that right there, if we just did pure math, 100 minus 20 gets us at 80%, right? Yep. If herd immunity is 70%, how do we get there? Assuming then maybe 20% of the population has already had COVID and we don't know about it yet. The herd immunity concept is number of people that have natural immunity as a result of getting COVID plus the number of people that have been vaccinated to sum to the total percentage of the population that has some form of immunity in order to get to this herd immunity threshold, which we're saying is 70% of the population. People want to say that kids don't get it and we can send kids back to school and it's fine and kids aren't really people, so they don't count. But they very much count from the perspective of a virus that does not give a shit about age or skin color or socioeconomic status or any of that. Kids are going to be affected by this, and to assume that they're special or magic is just idiotic. No, absolutely. And the the scary part for me about all this is that if I do the the eighty percent times three hundred eighty million, we need three hundred about three hundred million people vaccinated. So we're about a quarter of the way, a third of the way done, actually, right? Yeah, we're one hundred twenty one hundred twenty million people. Assuming that twenty percent is already sick, 
assuming we have to get to 70%, we have to get to basically 50% of the population jabbed with the needle. Okay, removing anybody who may have already been sick and getting vaccinated, we're not going to muddle the waters there. We just half the population has to get stabbed with the needle full of a vaccine somehow. The point I'm getting at is that we have to have the supply of vaccinations come through fast enough. We have to get enough people to get their arms jabbed fast enough before a mutant hits us. And not only that, but we also have to have a steady supply of the doctors and nurses who are still on the front lines fighting people who are still getting sick while attempting to still vaccinate and get people through the door. So this isn't quite over yet. The important part is that we get to the number where we can get to herd immunity. Not because I want capitalism to win, because it's failed us through the entire COVID. It's failed us every everything that they said capitalism is good for has failed this entire time. It's important that we don't keep killing people because they don't have the protection they need from COVID. So the moral of the story is that roughly 60 million more people need to get vaccinated in the United States in order for the U.S. to reach herd immunity. So at the current pace of, let's say, roughly 2 million doses a day, we'll get there in 30 days. That's great. That's 30 days. So by the middle of May, we're at herd immunity. I think so. I mean, maybe. From just a pure extrapolation standpoint. Purely extrapolation. Yeah, it's possible. Now, there's some hiccups. So what are the limiting factors that could contribute to this not happening? The first is that we're going to look at the Johnson & Johnson shot. And we had actually planned on talking about their manufacturing failure in Maryland, where they screwed up mixing the doses with the ingredients from the AstraZeneca vaccine, and they had to effectively throw away 15, literally 15 million doses. And that's creating a supply shortage. And now you see the Johnson & Johnson pause because it causes blood clots. So you have some non-zero percentage of vaccine availability through the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that is inaccessible. Now, the media wants to say, and the CDC and the government will say there's enough Pfizer and Moderna to backfill, and that absolutely may be the case. But people still have to desire to get the shot to get to the herd immunity threshold. It's supply chain, essentially. So w- what happened is what we consider to be one of the biggest failures in contract manufacturing, which is that you have a site that's set up to manufacture, and you give them the dosage or the recipe, and they're going as fast as they can, but there's no actual ops in the plant or operations support. So there's nobody checking labels. There's nobody going around checking anything. They're just slamming stuff as fast as they can. And the same thing that happens with single-source suppliers happened here, which is a boo-boo cost 15 million doses for vaccine vaccines because they ran so fast that quality control couldn't keep up. That's why you see recalls. Well, it didn't get to the point where they were actually like packaging these in syringes or whatever. They had a giant vat of whatever and they fucked it up. But it's not like a single individual like, oh, I put in half a cup of flour instead of a cup of flour and that totally fucked it up. No, they're making literally 15 million doses. Like this is not a single individual level of failure. This is a like entire quality system failure. And they did catch it, but what a cluster. You know, there's there's these terms that you can use in, in operations. It's called guided work. Normally, when you have something this important, you have guided workstations, which is, did you stick in or did you mix in one and a half gallons of X? And you go over and you weigh what, one and a half gallons or whatever the weights are, measure it out, liquid volume. And you verify a label because you have to scan it with the scan with a 2D barcode reader, right? And it says, boop, boop, yep, guarantee, that's it. And it's a lot of information. All that shit's on there. It's a six-step process. You validate it. You walk over. You pour it in. You stick that container in the waste because it's now fucking waste. And then you go over and do this again, and then at the end, you have a thing. It's 
hundreds and thousands of people doing this. And there's automation involved in it too. So you load the recipe into one system and the you know assembly line worker a couple steps down the line is scanning the barcodes exactly like they're supposed to and everything's matching up, right? Yeah. But it's fucked up like at a higher level that individual workers are not able, they don't even have context for what's going on because it's all compartmentalized. They don't know what's in the things. They have no idea. And at the end, somebody read at somebody's spreadsheet and was like, wait a minute, you did this? And they're like, yeah. So some quality person on a Sunday was like, what the fuck? Do it all the way. And then how do you get rid of 15 million? <laughs> like just the, the pure volume of it is. Yeah, five milliliters a shot. I mean, that's a lot of liquid, man. Like you have to burn that. Imagine incinerating liquid. So it's 750,000 liters, obviously. An Olympic swimming pool has 660,000 gallons. So doing the liter to gallon conversion, it's a little less than a third of an Olympic swimming pool. Yeah, okay, it's not that much, but then again, Olympic swimming pool is like, what, like 16 lanes and like 20 feet deep? It's 50 meters by 25 meters and 2 meters deep because we all know how big meters are in our head, right? Yeah, so it's 150 by 75, well, it's probably like 79, probably more like 160 by like 6.6 feet. For all of you counting at home, all of our 250,000 listeners. Send us an email if you got our math wrong. Yeah, it's at uh, podcast.workmovie.com. You can send us emails anytime you want to. All right, so what's going to fuck us up here? And again, it's all capitalism driven. It's 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 just so, so many things that are wrong with this entire system. Like profiting $25 per shot that they pull out of your insurance company because your insurance company is the one that pays for it, not the federal government. And maybe there's a rebate back to them. I really don't know. I don't really give a shit either. I don't give a shit. I'm, I, don't, I don't care. Go get vaccinated. I got vaccinated. Go get it. Um, the interesting thing about all of this, and, and part of incoherent rambling here, is that it, it's really putting everything in context. 15 million doses is enough for like... It's one quarter of the number of doses that we need to that get we need. immunity. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a big number. And, and that, talk, that comes into the point of, of should we even care about the second dose so like what are the efficacy rates and why why does it matter if they get the second dose of the mrna ones versus the johnson johnson because doesn't the johnson johnson only have like a 60 percent efficacy rate yeah so this boils down to what are the endpoints of each of the trials so if you're moderna and pfizer what was your objective what did the trial attempt to maximize effectively they wanted to maximize the effectiveness that's the goal right so, the, I mean, it was basically a study of two things. How many shots do you need, right? And how many people got sick after 14 days after the second dose? Not in between, not the 28 days in between shots or whatever it took for full vaccination from shot one to shot two, and then your 14 additional days, but after you've completed the entire trial. So they did not count anybody along the way, did they? Not to my knowledge. There's there's trial design nuance to this, though, but the point is, is that they're counting one thing, and I think it's it's either seven or fourteen days after the second dosage. Yeah, which which means you already have around one. There's a bunch of people who already got COVID in between there, and you're only really counting people who've made it all the way through the test. Yep. Against the general population. And this is the key point: the general population in the placebo group that you're comparing it to are social distancing. They're wearing masks. They're part of society that is engaged in limited human interaction. When Moderna or Pfizer says our vaccine is 95% effective, what does that say? So it is 95% effective compared to individuals who have worn a mask in the general population, 
starting for I think I think they had thirty days. There's a there's a trial time too in which they only counted people over. But there's a set number of time in which the individuals in this group can be part of the trial. And they also had to be wearing a mask. So it's ninety five percent effective at preventing COVID relative to the individuals that didn't get it. So again, this is the there's two trial groups. One is the placebo group, which is the people that get like a saline injection that is not the vaccine. And you have the other trial group, which is the actual vaccine. On day one, you go in there, you get poked. Both groups get poked. You don't know whether you're getting the vaccine or not. Some time period, I think you said 30 days, whether it's exactly 30 days, it doesn't really matter. You go in and before 30 days, you have to get your second poke. So now you've gotten poked twice. If you don't follow the rules and get your second shot, you get dropped in the trial. Yep, because I'll... they really want to test, how do I make a vaccine that is maximally effective? I want the, the number to be as high as possible. And whether that's the right thing to optimize, we're not having an opinion right now. But they determined that two shots was was optimal. You get the second shot, you're in the trial group, and you're compared to how many people got COVID in the trial group versus the placebo group. And the conclusion is that the people in the actual vaccine group had a 95%, I think, less likelihood of contracting COVID. Yep. It's all games with numbers, guys. There's there's 95% of a total number. There's 95% reduction. There's 95% compared to one another and normalized versus a normal number. They play games within these to make it sound like it's more effective than it really is. So then let's compare this to the Johnson & Johnson. And the Johnson & Johnson shot is a single shot. And I think their number is something like 66% effective. That's right. And again, that's that's compared to whatever their placebo group is. But the Johnson & Johnson percentage is after a shorter number of days. So you get one shot and it's, let's say, seven days after the shot, 14 days after the shot. How do you compare it to another group? Yep. The Pfizer Moderna were, were 30 days. So or six weeks, whatever, whatever the number, whatever. Yeah, be. whatever the number is. So just based on the two shot concept of Pfizer Moderna, there's there's different time periods involved, whereas Johnson Johnson is a much shorter time period. So you're really not comparing apples to apples. And that's the point of all that. And, and the other part is that during the time that the mRNA was being vaccinated and or being created, the dominant strain was vanilla COVID. Basically. The vanilla COVID. Yeah, vanilla, whatever. And then what happened is when Johnson Johnson was getting ready for their trials, there was the variants hitting, and they actually tested 55% effective against the South African variant. Yeah, the Johnson Johnson does better against the various variants. Yep. So, so what it comes down to, though, is we don't actually know anything about these vaccines until we get large trials. Now, there are a bunch of trials happening in Israel, which has some very interesting amount of data coming through. So Israel has very likely reached herd immunity because the entire population was basically vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine because the U.S. government and Israel basically just wanted to. So we did because it's a small place and a lot of studies and whatever. And so now you have the entire population has Pfizer vaccine. Herd immunity is reached. They're doing studies and testing on a large, large segment of the population there. And we'll see what happens. So Israel is perhaps the second country to reach herd immunity behind the Asian country of Bhutan. And Israel is going to be studied by the Pfizer research group. And they're fairly unlikely to have a massive outbreak unless a variant emerges. The thing about reaching herd immunity is that it can absolutely be successful if there is no mutation pressure on the virus. So once everybody has immunity the virus should theoretically not spread any longer. But there are externalities. People will come into Israel and leave Israel 
and you have the Palestinian population, which Israel doesn't give a fuck about, where the virus will wildly mutate because they're not people and who gives a fuck, and that's Israel's point of view. There's a potential that a mutant develops that is resistant to the Pfizer vaccine. There's pressure for the virus to mutate because everybody in the population has the Pfizer vaccine. Yes, and there's individuals within that population that are not vaccinated who are currently sick because of whatever it happens to be, whatever the reasons are, because they're basically in a free air K or free air prison, or whether or not they're just they're sick or something, right? I mean, one is Palestine. What, what I'm saying is that there's the, the fact that they're not taken care of, they're less fortunate in the, all these areas, Yemen, uh, in that area. I mean, it means that those people when they get sick, lots of mutations can happen. Look at Brazil. Look at South Africa. Look at any countries that we're not going to vaccinate. Mexico's right below the United States. I mean, there's and Canada has more cases today than the United States does. So there are there is not only mutant pressure in, in developing countries, but there are also in first world countries too, in which if the majority of the population doesn't get to herd immunity now, it cuts off travel and all these things that we say are bad, but really don't anybody get to it. The fastest growing virus, just like the fastest growing wavelength in any any perturbed system. It's going to be the virus that is resistant to the vaccination, like you, like you already said. It's going to be probing people, and eventually it's going to get through, and that mutant is going to be one that's going to take off again. And we may end up with something like the flu, where you have to get booster shots or what it happens to be, but we're not out of it yet. Even if you get herd immunity, there's still going to be cycles and lots to look forward to. And because there's so many different vaccines, you have Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Sputnik, Sinovac, Coronavac, there's there's many vaccines. You are going to get subpopulations of people that have more or less of this vaccine, and there will be mutation pressure with, within these subpopulations, and the one I just talked about is Israel, where they have all Pfizer. There is going to be mutation pressure within Israel for the virus to mutate to infect people with the Pfizer vaccine, because that is the path by which the virus lives it wants to replicate it wants to persist it wants to figure out a way to infect a new host that's how viruses work now i'm not saying it's going to happen in israel it could happen in brazil like it, it could happen wherever but the interesting takeaway is that the vaccine that has the most wide distribution is statistically more likely to be the target of a mutation just based purely on numbers there might be some underlying reason why the pfizer vaccine is unlikely to see mutation and we're not commenting on that but just from a pure numbers game, if you have, let's just use the U.S., you have of all 120 million vaccinations so far, Johnson & Johnson accounts for something like 6 million. So you're left with 114 million for either Pfizer or Moderna. I don't know what the split is, but let's just say it's 50-50. That means you have a large, large, large segment of the population with the Pfizer vaccine. And if there's a mutation, is it likely to affect the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is seen in a far fewer number of people, or the Pfizer vaccine? And from a game theory point of view, the virus doesn't necessarily care, except that if all the hosts around it had the same vaccinations, one or two things happen. It either dies off, right? Or which is our hope. Our hope it dies. We're just, we're just saying, not as pessimists, but as realists, that in individuals who know how the the worker has been treated this entire time which is basically like throwaway right the next the next round might just be just as awful i mean you got people opening up you got this insane argument that texas is better off than michigan and 
Is it what's another one? Is it just Michigan that's hot right now? New Jersey's bad. I think Minnesota's bad. So you have these these three states that have been in lockdown against the state that hasn't been in lockdown. The question is why? And they're going to have these pressures to open everything back up. And and quite honestly, I don't know if it's a scientific reason. Maybe there's more sun down there. Nobody knows. That's the word. Just randomly speculating. Felt, felt, yeah. But there there's clearly a a correlation where some states are doing way worse right now, despite having more stringent masking policies, more social distancing, less stuff that's open. You know, these are northern democratically controlled states that have harsher social distancing policies put forth by the government than a state like Texas, for example, which is go spit in each other's mouth as a mandate. Yeah, and so who knows if her immunity is already there because everybody has it. Like the the other thing is that Florida and Texas are places you go for spring break. And you don't necessarily like come like you're coming back to Michigan potentially with with a disease. You know, maybe there's a spike from spring break. Maybe not. I don't know. It's all conjecture here. What we're getting to though is that as a worker, the you know we sometimes in the show we forget to talk about that because sometimes it's just the information so fun to discuss. You know what what can you do to protect yourself and others? And number one is get vaccinated. If you can't get vaccinated, we understand. So make sure you wear a mask. Uh, keep six feet. Six feet has been breaking down a ton in stores. People are crowding you. Stay six feet away. Wipe the carts down. Get the antiseptic wipes, antibacterial wipes. Use hand sanitizer. Don't pick your nose. Don't pick your ear. Don't pick your eyes. Right? Don't do anything that can basically put disease in your mouth before you wash your hands. Uh, basically, just stay safe. Right? Stay home when you can. Shop when you have to. So all the things that that we knew we're a protection. We got to keep doing that because we don't want to be the one that is asymptomatic and get somebody at, at a restaurant sick. We discussed earlier that we're potentially 30 days from being able to return to normal. And that would be generally good. But we also have to remember that returning to normal for a lot of people is a return to exploitation. Absolutely. It might be better to be on unemployment than working $11 an hour. I mean, I've seen lots of signs out right now that says come hire here for $11 an hour. There's stores and restaurants, I'm not sure, depending on where you're at, that shut down because they don't have enough staff to run it because who wants to make $8 an hour or $9 an hour, be shit on by people who are not wearing masks, told that you're an asshole because you're enforcing a store policy, which is private property. Fuck private property, but again, the material conditions say that it's still private property, there's still laws about it. And they can just sit at home and make the same amount of money. I shouldn't even say sit at home. Not put themselves at risk is a much better way of saying it. Not be exploited. Not be exploited. I mean, Have what the fuck? Have your surplus value exploited by a third party. By some asshole because you want a pizza. And I will say this, too. I mean, there's there's like a ton of workers are stressed, too, because if there's not people in the workforce, you got to do more with less. And that's the mantra coming out of corporate America. That's the mantra coming out of small businesses. I mean, it's, it's basically do more or less. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.